This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. This is the Informer Daily for Wednesday, the 20th of May, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today. New research is showing that LGBTIQA plus people living in areas with high stigmatization have worse healthcare outcomes. And what does it mean when a city endorses the Darlington Statement? What is the Darlington Statement? We find out more. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy 94.9 COVID-19 update for the 20th of May. The World Health Assembly has formally passed a resolution calling for an independent review into the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Australia was the first country to publicly call for a review, straining political and economic relations with China, who claimed they were being politically attacked. There were no objections to the draft resolution as China is now supporting the inquiry, but that has not improved relations between Australia and China. Australia is spending $100 million to keep governments in Pacific nations afloat, providing them with the funds required to run their countries. Global travel bans, stopping tourism and recent cyclones have severely damaged the economies of multiple Pacific nations, prompting Australia to provide financial support to 10 nations in the region. Papua New Guinea will receive the most support. Other countries getting financing are Fiji, Solomon Islands, Samoa, Tonga, Nauru, Kiribati, Vanuatu, Tuvalu and Timor-Leste. Data for the COVID-Safe app has been accessed for the first time, being used by Victorian health officials to trace contacts made by a newly confirmed case. It is unknown at this point whether the man has been in contact with any other app users. The Federal Department of Health refuses to say whether it is truly the first time data has been accessed, but it is the first time it has been publicly announced. New South Wales health authorities claim they have also used the data. Anti-malarial drug hydroxychlorine will be given to Australian healthcare workers in a trial testing whether the drug can effectively prevent COVID-19 infections. Lab tests have shown it can keep the disease out of cells, but it has proven ineffective in treating people with COVID-19. United States health authorities have said the drug can cause heart problems and there is zero evidence it is effective in either treating or preventing COVID-19. Fiji's government is asking whether they can join the Australia-New Zealand travel bubble if and when it becomes a reality. The Australian government has been adamant to date about focusing only on reconnecting with New Zealand. But once that is done, they may consider opening to other Pacific nations. There are mixed reactions amongst Pacific Islanders to this new push, as many are concerned about opening borders too quickly. New South Wales is easing travel restrictions within its borders, and Premier Gladys Berejiklian says they will be open for travellers from other states. The Premier has been openly criticising other states, especially Queensland, for not having open borders. South Australia is bringing forward the relaxation of some restrictions, most notably allowing restaurants to serve up to 20 patrons from Friday. Although the original plan was to ban the sale of alcohol at restaurants, it's been decided alcohol can be put back on the menu at restaurants which decide to reopen. 
This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Researchers from Monash University found that same-sex couples living in locations where high levels of stigmatization are present were less likely to use primary health care services, and in the case of gay men, were less aware of HIV-related medication and treatments. I spoke with Corinna Saxby, a PhD researcher at Monash University, about the research. Yeah, so I guess, um, speaking more broadly, it's very well known that um, members of the LGBTQI plus community have worse health outcomes than their heterosexual counterparts. So um, just thinking in terms of not only acute and chronic conditions, but also a wide range of um, poorer mental health conditions. So um, sexual minorities are more likely to engage in um, kind of self-harming behaviour, suicidal ideation, suicidality, and a whole range of other um, poorer mental health outcomes, so mental health disorders, things like that. Um, and so kind of one of the main ways or a key way it's thought that sexual minorities have this poorer health is due to this theory called minority stress theory. So it's basically the situation where sexual minorities more frequently experience kind of discrimination, victimisation, um, and more broadly stigmatisation that's that's based on their sexual identity. Um, and so the, really this is um, kind of thought to lead to poorer health in general. Um, but up until recently, it wasn't really clear how sexual minorities might engage with the healthcare system. So one thought is because um, they're in poorer health, they might be more likely to use more healthcare services, you know, because they're in poorer health, they need to visit the GP more and things like that. Um, but then on the other hand, because they're living in areas kind of, um, particularly if they're living in areas with more stigmatisation, you might expect that they're less likely to engage with kind of healthcare services because of this kind of fear of discrimination and and rejection. So um, it wasn't really clear which way it might play out. Um, so basically what we did is that we used the results from the Australian Marriage Law Postal Survey in 2017 and we basically mapped the regional percentage of no votes or votes against same-sex marriage and used that as a kind of regional measure of structural stigma. Mm -hmm. um, and then from that, we've mapped that to um, administrative data on healthcare use. Um, and we got this from um, kind of census-linked data. So we were actually only able to look at Australians that were in same-sex relationships at the time of the 2016 census. Mm -hmm. Um, and basically, yeah, we mapped that measure of stigma to the healthcare use for Aussies in same-sex relationships and found that actually when the regional percentage of no votes went up, so there was more stigma, that Aussies in same-sex relationships would use more nervous system scripts, so more antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication, um, but they were less likely to visit the GP and use less GP services if they did visit mm. the doctor at all. Um, and then in particular, when we looked at men in same-sex relationships, we also saw that when there was more regional stigma, they were less likely to use pathology services and anti-infective-related medications. So these are things like um, kind of sexual health checks, STI tests, and also HIV-related medications. So things like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, I suppose that, uh, another really interesting finding which is also depressing is that we see that in those regions where there's more stigma Australians in same-sex relationships are more likely to report having a disability or to have received disability support payment so like kind of all together it's showing that 
um, sexual minorities living in these more stigmatized regions, they're, they're definitely in poorer health, but they're less likely to actually seek the care that they need. If I remember correctly, a, a few of the areas that voted no particularly were mostly rural. Did you find any difference in some of the areas that were more urban? Yeah, so it was, it's really interesting, the variation, actually. So um, you probably know that one of one of the highest areas with the with the largest amount of no votes was actually in inner in a um in the sydney kind of western sydney um so you do see a lot of action also in the inner suburbs but generally apart from some of those outliers generally speaking when you move further out into the rural remote parts of australia there's a there's a higher amount of no votes so greater proportion of no votes more stigma um and we do see as well that those areas it, it kind of exacerbates the situation because a lot of those areas have um, lower density of healthcare professionals in general as well. Mm. So it's 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 not only that stigmatization that's affecting sexual minority healthcare use, it's also the lack of access to healthcare services. How much of a disparity is it in some areas? Um, so in terms of the largest magnitude you can really think about is going from, say, the area of the largest percentage of no votes to the areas with the lowest percentage of no votes. So that's going from, say, 56% no votes to um, 13% no votes, which was the lowest in Australia. Um, and it looks like that change is associated with one additional nervous system script, so one more antidepressant. So um, kind of translating that into real terms, it could be an additional six months worth of antidepressant medication. So it is a significant, um, a significant gap. Were there other findings that you that you came across? Yeah, so I, I guess we could also look at the um, the difference of the effect among different sexual minorities. So specifically, we saw that um, when you look in these high stigma regions, it was those with the lowest income, um, the less use of education, and also the less access to healthcare services that kind of we saw the biggest effects for. So if you're living in a region that has a lot of stigma and then on top of that you haven't got access to healthcare services, you've got a low income, you maybe only um, you didn't finish high school education, then that's where we're seeing the biggest effects. So sexual minorities experiencing all of those factors, they have a really large increase in the use of antidepressants and are significantly less likely to visit the doctor. So, yeah. so what should we do with this information? Well, um, for me personally, I, I see the results as like pretty clear um, in terms of the policy implications. Um, more broadly, I think it suggests that we should kind of be bolstering anti-discrimination um, laws and protections. So one of the key things I really see coming out of this is trying to use this as evidence as to why things like the religious discrimination bill is going to negatively impact sexual minorities in a really significant way. Um, so among other things, that bill would enable healthcare professionals to basically um, deny healthcare treatment based on, on religious grounds, for example. So you might have, say, a pharmacist saying, no, I'm not going to give you this PrEP medication, stuff like that. So I could see how things like that could be really dangerous. Um, and then on top of that, more broadly, I guess it's important to look at these areas that have a lot of um, stigma and try and try to develop more inclusive practices in those settings. And whether that's um, kind of just improving access in general, but developing more inclusive practices, training for GPs, things like that. Just more generally trying to have more of a safe 
space in mm. these regions. Yeah. What got you started on this topic? Um, do you know the thing? Um, I was, of course, in Australia when this this was all happening, and I saw how awful it was. The kind of the marriage equality debate on both sides, and it was just really awful to be around. And my friends who were, you know, just so upset by the whole thing and just hearing the awful no camp campaigns that really um, I could tell it was impacting the mental health of my my friends and I could tell as well that um, just just from looking around like I saw I remember um, Headspace which is that kind of they provide a lot of mental health support I remember in the build-up to the marriage equality vote they actually reported the biggest spike biggest increase in people requiring help with their mental health just because of the awful media and everything surrounding the no campaign um so i suppose i had always been thinking about it since then in 2017 um but it was only until in early 2019 that i actually was able to get access to some data where i could kind of prove what i already thought was going on if you know what i mean mm -hmm. and what's next for your research what are you looking at now um, so I'm trying to delve a bit more into this work. I'm working with some people at the Kirby Institute who um, also get some data on gay men nationally. And I'm hoping to look at more the effects of stigma on HIV diagnosis and um, use of kind of HIV-related medication more specifically. Um, but I'm also hoping to look at other health outcomes. So actually looking at whether I can disentangle if there's an effect of this stigmatization on on just general health, but also things like mortality and suicidality. Um, it's a very, it's a, yeah, it's such a depressing topic, but I think it's really important that this information gets out there. Uh, and I guess the biggest barrier is trying to get access to this data. Um, but yeah, I'm going to keep, keep trying. <laughs> Corinna Saxby, PhD researcher at Monash University, speaking with me yesterday. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. A council in Melbourne's Inner North has joined a growing chorus backing intersex communities across Australia and New Zealand. The city of Darabin is the first local government in Australia to affirm the Darlington Statement after the council voted unanimously to back the statement last month. The Darlington Statement acknowledges the diversity within the intersex community and the progress they're seeking with human rights, health and well-being, education, awareness and employment. Informer reporter Arian Potts spoke with the city of Darabin mayor and a councillor. I'm Susan Rennie. I'm the mayor of the city of Darabin. I'm Stephanie Amir. I'm a councillor at the city of Darabin and I use she, her pronouns. So we're here today because uh, the city of Darabin has just endorsed the Darlington Statement. Uh, why was that important for the city to do that? So the idea first came from a resident in Darabin, uh, a man called Paul, who's intersex. Uh, and Paul um, spoke to one of the community advisory committees, the Sex, Sexuality and Gender Diversity Advisory Committee, um, about his experience of being intersex and 
some issues facing intersex people and um, that's when we, or I was introduced to the Darlington Statement and uh, he specifically said to not kind of um, jump straight on and say, yes, that's great, but to take it home and reflect, read and reflect and think about um, the role that we could individually play and the City of Durban could play um, in supporting intersex people. So I took that suggestion seriously. I um, took it home and read it and thought about it and um, had... Uh, an idea about Darabin becoming the first council to endorse the Darlington Statement. Um, I then took that suggestion back to the advisory committee and because there were no uh, intersex community members on the advisory committee, they, the the members that were there were very clear that they didn't want to make decisions or speak on behalf um, of intersex people. Uh, so suggested I speak with uh, international human rights sorry, Intersex Human Rights Australia um, about what would be involved in affirming the Darlington Statement and what level of existing commitment would be needed before our council could do that. So um, I got in touch and spoke with Tony Briffer, who's also a councillor, um, and Tony was very excited about uh, council taking that step uh, and said that um, that was something that could be... Um, a first step towards doing more and I guess to come back to your first question about why is it important, Darabin um, Council uh, is a very progressive council, we think of ourselves as being quite uh, inclusive and particularly particularly around LGBTIQ rights so for me I felt that um, intersex people were the part of the LGBTIQ um, community who had been, we'd, we'd done the least for, I guess, to be up front. And so I wanted to do something to help uh, bridge mm -hmm. that gap. I, I would um, second what Steph has said and say this is an incredibly important part of being an inclusive community and recognising that there are some groups within the community who for various historical and social reasons have not felt as included and we as a council and as a community want to be inclusive for everybody and this I think is part of that demonstration of our support for all people in Darabin and a desire to make everybody feel equally welcome and at home. And how did it go when the full council debated this? One of the delightful things about Darabin Council and about my colleagues is that everybody was in support. So this motion passed unanimously and a number of councillors spoke very enthusiastically about our support for the Darlington Statement and why it's so important. What does it mean for the council? Do, they, do you have to change anything that you do in the way that you work in a significant way or...? I think it means that we have to be um, constantly aware and mindful of how you create physical and social environments that are safe for all people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, councils obviously build a lot of infrastructure. Um, the most obvious example is um, in toilet facilities. How do you build infrastructure that has facilities that are appropriate, safe and inclusive for everyone? Um, that's still somewhere we have a lot to go, a, a long way to go in Australia. And, you know, there's a whole lot of other ways in terms of the forms that councils use, the language mm -hmm. councils use. Um, all of those kind of things also have to be looked at and we have to be more mindful. And that doesn't mean we will always get it right, but it means we will always um, be looking at what we're doing, seeking to improve and 
open to feedback from community if they feel as though our, our language, our inclusiveness is not exactly where they'd like to see it. Mm. Darabin was, I think, one of the few councils, if not the only council, who uh, has already done a few small actions towards um, the support of intersex people. So one example is uh, flying the intersex flag uh, on Intersex Awareness Day. And also there was a uh, education event for staff um, about intersex people that was run last year. Um, we've also uh, had, yes, yeah, speakers and those sorts of things. So there have been some small actions taken. And I think there's also in reading through the Darlington Statement and some of the things that are in there, there's actions being taken by council um, that will be um, consistent. So one example would be we're already doing a um, looking at our uh, administrative processes and paperwork and those sorts of things, I suppose more from the perspective of being inclusive of transgender people, mm. um, but by moving away from, for example, collecting gendered information where it's not necessary, that yep. also is consistent with um, what's asked for in the Darlington Statement. So there's a few examples like that where by being more inclusive of one group, we end up being more inclusive for everyone. So you've had huge demographic change in the, the Darabin area over the last 20 years, really. There's been a lot more creative organizations that have moved. How do you sort of balance all these different community needs? When a community is inclusive for one group, it tends to become more inclusive of other groups. And mm -hmm. you can't embrace a little bit of diversity. You either embrace diversity and see it as an enormous strength for your community, or you don't. And, and we've certainly said that the diversity in Darabin takes all colours and shapes and sizes and ages and, and backgrounds and languages and, you know, that's a challenge for some groups who might traditionally have wanted to be included but also been uncomfortable with other groups and actually saying you can't... It's, it's not okay to have a community that includes some people and makes some people feel welcome but doesn't do the same for all people. And so we've constantly been looking for opportunities to make our community inclusive for everyone and also recognise intersectionality so that people don't just often belong to one group that might be marginalised. People belong to multiple groups and experience... Um, places and spaces and, 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 and buildings and, and, and social situations through that lens of multiple belongings. I think it's also about being responsive to what each individual person or each community um, group wants. So one example might be you mentioned the older Italian people and we have a um, older Italian um, community group, seniors group who um, are supported by council meeting council spaces and are very active and for them that social connection is really important. Uh, and then for example um, in support for intersex people, I mean again coming back to the example of um, administrative forms or it might be about um, community education programs, those things are not um, mutually exclusive. We can we can respond to the differing needs of the different community groups. And um, for example, if you're a 18-year-old uh, intersex person, you don't have an interest in being in an Italian seniors group and the Italian seniors group don't mind whether or not, um, you know, they're asked their sex on a council form. So uh, I think, yeah, it's that heterogeneity that makes um, our area. It's, what, it's what, what people really love about it. I think a lot of people do mention that when you ask what do you love about Darabin, that's often something that comes up. They might say it's vibrant or it's diverse or it's inclusive. Uh, and it's something that the community is really proud of, I think, regardless of where you fit in within that community. What's next for Darabin as far as recognising LGBTIQA plus people? 
Look, I, th I think that we've demonstrated through actions that we've taken and programs we've implemented that we are always looking at ways to do more. So, you know, we were the first council to introduce a transgender and non-binary swim night in our um, leisure centres. A couple of weeks ago, I had the great pleasure of opening the first ever Cricket Pride Cup, um, which was fantastic. And so, you know, we see ourselves as a municipality where there is a political and social willingness to take these steps that can demonstrate to other councils and other communities around Australia how, how they can also be more inclusive. And, you know, a big part of that is we listen to our community. Mm. So we have an advisory committee that's a mechanism for us to get feedback and ideas from people in the community. Um, other community members can also contact us directly in the way that Paul did and say, you know, mm -hmm. this would make a difference to me. And we will take the feedback really seriously and look at what we can do. Because quite often small changes can have such significant benefits to community members. Mm. And uh, yeah, so this, as Susan said, this idea came from a community member as did our Trans and Gender Diverse Swim Night, which has been, I think, one of the hallmark programs of our council, something we're really proud of and um, study in Darabin has now expanded around Victoria. So. I think um, in terms of what's next part of it will be led by community, community members and the suggestions that come to us. And sometimes I was going to say there might be some tensions in what people want with some groups of wanting to um, have something um, more specific and others uh, leaning more towards a um, integrated, um, intersectional kind of approach. So I think maybe we need a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of both, um, and to respond to yeah what the community needs going into the future. What are some of the upcoming priorities in general for Darabin Council? Probably one of our greatest priorities is responding to the climate emergency and that means thinking about how we mobilise and engage all of the members of our community to respond to the climate emergency. I think most councillors on our council would say there is no greater issue that we have to tackle mm. as a community today. Um, but we're also very focused on a number of social issues. We've had a huge piece of work on aged care and how we become a more age-friendly city. Can you talk about that a bit? You know, one of the things we know happens when some people become older is that they become very socially isolated and council has been providing services to older people for many years and those services are really treasured and much loved. The Commonwealth Government is shifting the way they fund services and that's meant we've had to actually look at what we deliver. We're really keen to keep providing services but the landscape is shifting rapidly and we also know that it's not just the services people get in their home, it's the physical environment and the social environment in which they live that, that determine the kind of connections that people are able to develop and so we're looking now at developing new models of help assisting people to stay in their homes we know that's what most people want mm -hmm. we've just had a big debate on a gardening lawn mowing kind of service and, and and we've gone down a path of innovation and actually saying let's engage our community in thinking about solutions and pitching for money for ideas to actually trial volunteer-led and social connection-led ways of responding to people's needs for gardening and, and mowing support. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a really ongoing and fascinating people piece of work, which also, of course, intersects with LGBTI communities because LGBTI communities age like like everyone in the community. And, you know, and, and, and talking of intersectionality, that's often a, a forgotten segment. So um, we're really proud of the kind of work that we're doing in that space as well. 
That was City of Darabin Mayor Susan Rene and Councillor Stephanie Amir speaking about their support for the intersex community following the Council's affirmation of the Darlington Statement. That's all for us today. Thank you to Emily Johnson, D. Mason, Nicholas Kamenyu-Sandry for their production help. I'm your host and executive producer, Arian Potts. We'll be back tomorrow. Mahalo. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.